One thing that I have seen again and again and again is that the best entrepreneurs almost always start off under the wing of someone who's really good. They do a year or two working under that person's wing and they see what goes on behind the scenes and then they build uh, their own business uh, as a result. The show that talks about balancing business, babies, and all the beautiful madness that lies in between. I promise you will learn a lot, you will grow a lot, and you will laugh a lot. But most of all, I promise that you will finally see that you are made for incredible things, and I'm here to help you achieve them all. It's time to stop telling yourself that your dreams are too big and start dreaming bigger. This is the Made For More podcast. Let's do this. friends. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I am so excited to bring you this interview today. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing the incredible Daniel Priestley. Daniel is a entrepreneur. He's a best-selling author. He's a motivational speaker and he's just the most well-rounded entrepreneur with all the skills and knowledge I think I've ever met. And he, he gave so much of his time up today to, um, to chat to me on the podcast. But then even after, once we stopped recording, he gave me like another half an hour of just incredible coaching. And honestly, I've learned so much from him. So I read a couple of his books. They helped me so much. And I had some real light bulb moments, which is why I wanted to get him on the on the podcast today. And I know that you're going to take so much from it. His understanding of the market, where we're at right now, you know, selling online, creating a personal brand and really creating a solid, sustainable business is incredible. And I know you're going to take so much from it. So I really hope you enjoy this interview. I'm going to jump straight into it because you definitely don't want to be listening to me. You want to be listening to him. And uh, yeah, I can't wait for you to, to hear all about it. So if you love this episode, make sure you take a screenshot, share it on Instagram and tag me at Carly Myers Life. And if you really, really love it, then head over to Apple iTunes and give me a little cheeky five-star review. It would mean so much to me. It really helps me um, grow this podcast and yeah, it's just so good to so good to see. So thank you so much, everyone. I hope you love it and I can't wait to see you next week. Bye. Okay, so one of the most common things I get in my DMs or comments on my photos is people saying, how are you doing all of this? How are you doing all of these things in your business and doing it around babies? And I've got a little secret weapon. I feel like I'm cheating a little bit, but my secret weapon is Kajabi. So Kajabi is how I run my entire business. All of my email marketing, all of my website, all of my courses, my webinars, literally everything runs on Kajabi. If it's not on Kajabi, I don't do it. Honestly, it has literally saved my life. So if you are wanting to create loads of things, if you're really wanting to take your business to the next level and really have an amazing platform online, but you don't know where to start and you're not very techy, then Kajabi is definitely the one for you. So I've got a free 30-day trial for you. If you click the link in the show notes or if you head over to my Instagram bio and click the link in there, you will get access to all of the things that I recommend. So I cannot recommend this enough. It will literally save your life and your business and your sanity and you will have a fancy schmancy website and all of the wonderful online things that I do. You're welcome. Hey Daniel, how are you doing? Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. 
Oh, I am so, so excited to have you on, the, on my podcast, honestly. So I actually, I came across you a few years ago. I'd just been getting into personal development. I'd been in my network marketing business for a little while and a friend said to me, I hadn't seen him for ages, and he said, you need to come and see this guy. There's a, He's got like a, a training day on. You need to come with me. So I went with him and it was one of your training events. It was about the key person of influence. And I remember it so clearly because I had a total light bulb moment because up until that point my brand had always been my company and then when yeah. I went to that training I thought oh my god I am my brand I need to create a brand for myself I need to and it totally blew my mind and then do you know the worst part about it is that when I went to that training you also gave away a free book so you gave away uh, key personal influence and you also gave oversubscribed and I saw a friend after that and he said oh I'm I'm almost wanting to get into personal development and I said you know what take this book read it and then we'll swap it once I read the other one and he took oversubscribed and then now five years later I've just read oversubscribed and I've had another light bulb moment I think I could have been oversubscribed five years ago all time. Yeah. I know I know um but anyway Anyway, I'm so excited for everyone to hear about this. I've, I've been speaking about you for ages um, and, uh, yeah, oversubscribed and everything like that. So um, Total what, I would love to, what I would love to really know is like, I would just love to um, just give us a little bit of a backstory. So people that don't know anything about you, we're going to dive yeah, right sure. into the good stuff. I was born in Australia and um, I grew up in Australia, but I've lived in the UK for about 16 years now. And um, I'm a father of three kids. So I've got a three-year-old, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, so the little ones. Um, when I was about 22, I started my first company and it was a very fast growth company in Australia. We became a national business in about three years, doing about a million dollars a month in sales. So it was kind of grew quite quickly and I had this huge team of um, young people. Everyone was under... Most of us were under 25, but everyone was under 30. And um, yeah, we, we got that up to about $11 million a year in, in sales, uh, all before I turned 25. So it was a very fast growth wow. kind of wild ride, to be to be honest. And um, expanded head office into the UK uh, and basically um, was, yeah, I've been an entrepreneur ever since. I've started several different businesses today. Uh, fast forward to today, so I have an entrepreneur accelerator with offices in London, Sydney, and Toronto. Uh, we've also got an entrepreneur services group of companies, which has film production, book publishing, um, IT services, uh, PR, uh, and there's about I think there's about a hundred people who work across all those companies um, today. So we've got a great, a great, amazing global team. Um, and yeah, I, I've written some books and, uh, we've got a tech business. So, um, lots, lots going on. Wow. That is jam packed. I mean, I can't imagine the learning curve that goes with being 22 and growing a business that fast. I mean, that's got to be some steep learning, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It was an amazing time. It was uh, basically I'd spent from age 19 to 21, I'd worked for a mentor and I was under my mentor, John's wing. Um, I was employee number three. And when I left, there was about 60 people on the team. So I had had this experience of working around the kitchen table right through to having big offices in Melbourne. Um, and, um, and and basically, I, I because I had joined a startup, I was part of 
um, this entire culture where everyone at the beginning got to see every decision get made. So all the hiring and all the firing and all the marketing and all the finance was very transparent. So I had this really weird opportunity to just ride shotgun on a fast growth startup. And then I had a bit of a falling out with John when I was 22 and he made a joke and said, if you want shares in my car, I said, can I have some shares in the business? He said, if you want shares in a business, go start your own business. So I went, fine, I will. And uh, I basically went off and copied the whole, (laughs) (laughs) copied what I'd seen. Yes. I love it. uh, Cheeky 22 year old. Oh, that's, that's good though, isn't it? I think when you're younger, you're so fearless and you're so courageous. You think, you know, you've you've got got that kind of. You've got time available. No, I love it. I love it. So I'm going to, there's so much that I want to cover in, in my time with you, but so I'm going to jump right into it if that's okay. Um, yeah, so I, I spoke about the fact that I've recently listened to um, Oversubscribed and I just love the concept of it. And I realised, I said to you before, I realised I've been doing it all wrong. You know, when I listen to that, it makes so much sense. And I thought, what have I been doing? Of course, that's the way to do it. So could you just give a really brief idea of what it means to be um, oversubscribed. And then I want to touch on a few deeper points within it. Sure. So on day one of any economics class, you learn that demand and supply set the price. That essentially, if something has massive amount of demand, people, lots of people want it, um, then the price goes up. And if there's lots and lots of supply of something, but not many people want it, the price will go down in order to clear that thing away. Uh, and that's the basics of, of business. Now, The first thing you should know about business is that it's not fair and it's not like equitable and it's not nice. It's just demand and supply in many regards. So for example, um, there's there's two businesses that um, have suffered or benefited from this principle. One is Rolex. Rolex is extremely clever at keeping demand uh, small and having a global audience of people who want a Rolex watch. Um, And hence, the strangest thing happens with a Rolex. You can buy a brand new Rolex for about £10,000 and then immediately sell it for maybe £14,000 or £15,000 on what's called the grey market. So demand and supply is so imbalanced with a Rolex watch that you can buy something brand new and sell it secondhand and make a £5,000 profit. Of course, it's very, very hard to even get one brand new. You have to be on a waiting list for a year or two just simply to get a brand new Rolex. So what they have is an imbalance of demand and supply. And then if you flip that and you say um, airline uh, tickets, airline tickets at the moment are not profitable. um, And essentially, there are more seats available than they can sell. Um, and there's not a huge demand for airline tickets the way there once was. So that business is losing money. Now, if you were thinking about it from a point of view of fairness, you would say, gee, it's, it should be more fair that someone running a role, um, someone running an airline should make more profit than someone running a, a watch business that hasn't really innovated in 50 years. Like, why is it that someone who is making a watch, a fancy watch, is making huge amounts of profit and someone who's essentially running a global service that you know humanity relies upon to get around is losing money hand over fist and it's purely and simply it's just the relationship between demand and supply so one of the things that we need to know as small businesses is that we cannot have a situation where we have extra supply of something and not enough demand Um, We have to have a situation where there's lots of people who want something 
and a very narrow number of people who can have that thing. Um, so you've got to, um, essentially, you've got to manufacture that scenario. You have to uh, create the conditions where that happens. For so many entrepreneurs, when you create a product, you you feel like you just want to serve everyone, don't you? And you know, you feel like you just want to give everything to everyone and that's that's your kind of thought process. But what I loved about Oversubscribed is that you're actually saying, don't try and make it so accessible for everyone. And especially, you know, I've heard you talk about pricing when you're pricing yourself. Pricing for so many people can really make them uncomfortable and they kind of think, right, I'm going to lower my prices so that everyone can get my product. But then by doing that, you actually, it's a disservice to your product, isn't it? And it makes it so accessible that it's kind of like a, meh, I could get it. Um, Take it or leave it. And on top of that, um, you you end up with a situation where the mathematics just don't work. So for example, if you lower the, let's say you sell something that's 200 pounds. Well, if you want to hit 100,000 per year, you're going to have to make a sale every single day. Um, actually, no, it's probably two sales a day, something like two, two sales a day, right? So you're going to have to make a sale in the morning and a sale in the afternoon every single day for every single working day of the year just to hit £100,000 worth, um, worth of revenue. Now, if you sell something that is uh, £5,000, you're only going to have to make 20 sales per year. That's it. So... Uh, so hence selling something that's a bit more expensive when it, co- to, when it comes time to actually meeting your goals and doing what it is you want the business to do, uh, it's, a lot, it's often a lot easier to have a smaller number of clients at a higher price. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you say as well, when you, um, sometimes when business start, businesses start struggling, they start offering sales and lowering their prices and saying, oh, you know, 50% off, come in and you can get into a really bad habit and it's, it massively affects your brand, doesn't it? And how people people view you. Yeah, it affects the brand, but also in times of recession, let's say, let's say the market for what you uh, have drops by, let's say, 40% and then you drop your prices by 40%. Now you've got a double whammy. You've got a, a smaller market times by a smaller price. When there's a recession on, you should think about increasing your prices so that if the market is going to be a smaller market, at least you're going to have a smaller number of people who pay a higher price. Now, that sounds absolutely crazy, but during the pandemic and the lockdown, I spoke to all of these fitness trainers who were basically saying, we can't go in the gym, we can't do anything. Um, I'm going to create an online course. I'm going to have an online thing. Uh, and it's going to be 39 a month. Um, and I said, you're not going to get hundreds of people signing up to this because everyone's doing it all at once. So I advised a number of my um, clients, uh, my, my fitness trainer clients, go back to your people who already know you and say, oh, I will do a specialized program just for you. And I will figure out how to make sure you don't put on weight during the pandemic. Uh, and we're going to, it's going to be slightly more expensive than what you were paying, but it's going to be tailored to you. Now, all of my clients who put their prices up and focused on a smaller number of clients, they sailed through the pandemic and they actually haven't gone backwards. They're they're keeping their prices high. All the people I know who reduced their price, tried to do something digital, tried to give it away for free. They might've engaged some people, but they didn't get any, they didn't make it through financially. Yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? And I think like, the, the the pandemic was such a learning curve for so many people because they just had to instantly pivot. But what I loved uh, about what you say in Oversubscribed is about creating your own market. So not necessarily following what everyone else is doing and saying, well, you know, this is what everyone's doing, so this is what I do, but just creating your whole 
a whole market on your, in your own right. And then it's up to you, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So rather than thinking about um, who is the market for this particular product, because that's kind of like, like here's, a, here's an example. <clears throat> Me personally, I'm not a heavy metal fan. I don't listen to lots of heavy metal music, but strangely, I love Metallica, right? So I grew up with Metallica and I had Metallica albums when I was a teenager and I've been to Metallica concerts. Now, if Metallica comes to town, I'm totally going to buy a ticket and see Metallica. If any other heavy metal band in the world comes to town, I'm not going to buy a ticket, right? I'm not a heavy metal fan. I'm a Metallica fan. So the idea here is that we become loyal to particular people or bands or brands, um, but we don't necessarily have to be in that market. So when you think about markets, it's an abstract concept that probably doesn't even exist. Um, whereas when you think about your own audience, your fans, your the people who are loyal to you, excited by what you have to say, you know that's that's what we should be shooting for in business. We should be building ourselves a, a loyal audience who um, who want a limited range of products that we offer. Yeah, it just comes back to staying in your own lane, doesn't it? Really, staying in your own lane. Don't compare yourself to others. Just kind of you know carve your own path. Yeah, and just focus on that imbalance. So if you want to sell uh, one thing, you need between five and ten people in your audience. So let's say you want to sell a coaching program, right? Well, you for every one person who uh, you want to buy that coaching program, you need to have something like 10 people who signal their interest, who are saying, yep, I'm interested in buying coaching programs for you. Now, if that can be transparent, if people can see that other people are signaling their interest, then that works really well. And the numbers just extrapolate up from there. If you want to have 100 coaching programs that you sell, you need something like 500 to 1,000 people signaling their interest that they want those coaching programs. Um, And all you have to do is orchestrate that imbalance. Essentially, provided people can see that there are more people signaling interest than there are people who um, can can access that particular product, Uh, provided people see there's a lineup, there's an imbalance of demand and supply, uh, then that's all that's necessary. Going back to the Rolex example, most people don't care at all about Rolexes. <laughs> like the vast majority of people out walking down the street, if I ask them how often do you think about Rolex watches, most people are going to say, I never think about Rolex watches ever. But there is a small, highly engaged community of people who really, 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 really want one. And they know that other people really want one. And they know there's an imbalance between the number that come out each year and how many people are willing to buy those. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's just about not trying to get everyone to love your product, but just trying to get that small group of people that are raving fans and are obsessed and will literally be like, whatever you put out, I'm getting. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm down. Yeah. I'm all over it. So if you, if there's someone that's um, they're in business and maybe they listen to Oversubscribed and like, like me, they have a little light bulb moment. I think, oh, I've just been doing it wrong. I've been, you know, playing it way too small. I've been marketing it all wrong. If someone's been in that place where they're, um, they're stuck in this place where they've been offering loads of sales and they've been lowering their, their prices and things like that, how can they now switch it to make themselves oversubscribed and that kind of like, I need to have this product? Service. So there's a few a few things that have to happen. Number one, you need to think about <clears throat> what do you want what do you want to happen in the year ahead. So how much money do you want to earn? <clears throat> um, you got to you got to start with the end in mind. So let's say you think to yourself, okay, what I really want is I want to make ten thousand a month. So I need one hundred and twenty thousand 
um, is the income that I want. And there's going to be some costs of running the business. So I'll just double it and make it 240,000 is how much revenue I need to do. And uh, so you sort of start with that. And then you say, okay, if I've got to make 20,000 a month worth of sales, um, I could either uh, have a one pound thing and sell 20,000 of them or a 20,000 pound thing and sell one of them or, or somewhere in between, right? <laughs> so uh, so then you start working out what realistically do I think I could do? Maybe I could sell 10 things at 2,000 or five things at 4,000. And you think, okay, well, let's have a look at, you know, so you want to start by playing out a game and sort of setting the rules of the game. And you're not trying to just kind of get through one day at a time, you're trying to zoom out, look at an entire year and think about, okay, what would that year look like? If I was to get to the end of that year and say, that's a super successful year, I'm really thrilled with that, then um, that's the starting point. And you've got to come up with different ways of achieving the goal. So you're going to maybe come up with five different potential ways you could achieve the goal. These are called scenario plans. And those scenario plans are essentially... Well, we could do a high volume of low value things or a low volume of high value things or somewhere in between or a little bit of both. So you're kind of mapping out different scenarios. Now, the more time you spend talking to experienced entrepreneurs and saying, um, here's three ways I could potentially get to my goal this year. I could do it this way, this way, or this way. Which one do you think's best and why? So you might kind of like just have some discussions around what the which scenario seems to be the most sensible one uh, to go with. So then what you want to do is you want to break it down into the 52 weeks and you want to say, okay, let's say there's going to be 40 weeks where I'm going to be able to aggressively go after sales. And we'll call those the normal weeks of the year. Um, and there's going to be 40 of those just for, for nice round numbers. So you want to take your target and break it down into 40 mini campaigns. And those mini campaigns, I call them perfect repeatable weeks. Uh, perfect repeatable weeks are essentially if I just do this each week, um, I'm going to hit my target. So let's say um, I'll give you an example of a perfect repeatable week. Uh, I have a business called Score App, and Score App is a technology business, and we we basically uh, have people sign up to the software, they set up their own online quizzes, um, and then they pay a monthly subscription to that. Now, my perfect repeatable week is every single week for 40 weeks of the year. We want to have 50 people on a Zoom call. We want to explain in one hour what Score App does. And we want to have, um, out of 50, we want 20 of them to take on our free trial. And then out of 20, we want um, about, I think it's 14 to go through and actually uh, pay their month one subscription. So we know that 50 people are on the call, 20 people take the, um, so to get 50, we need about 100 registered, 50 show up, uh, and then... Um, 20 take the free trial, 14 pay their first payment, and away we go. So if I do that 40 weeks of the year, that's going to get me pretty damn close to my annual target of new subscribers for the, the platform. So that's one of the things that I have in my perfect repeatable week. Um, so essentially you can see I'm doing a fair bit of planning and I'm doing I'm like thinking it through in those, those terms and I'm breaking it down into little bite-sized chunks and I'm then going to just execute 40 repeatable weeks, 40 repeatable weeks. Um, to make it a bit more exciting, I'm going to probably put in three or four fancy campaigns that I call spotlight campaigns. Um, and those campaigns are going to be a guest speaker, 
um, some sort of special promotion or event, some sort of product launch, something special is going to happen four times a year uh, and that's going to be interlaced between my perfect repeatable weeks. That's so interesting because I think like so many people would probably do the first part of the maths and say, what do I want to earn? I need this many sales. And they'd say, right, I need 14 people joining every month. But then they just forget the whole the, the whole other bit of like how many people you actually need to get registered, then onto a call and then, yep. you know, how to convert those. So that's a, that's a great way of looking at it. And I love the, it's kind of like, yeah, you're like everyday non-negotiables and then the campaigns. So with your campaigns, um, how, so a lot of my audience are network marketers and I was a network, I'm a, a, a network yep. marketer as well. Um, how do you think a campaign could work within the network marketing industry? Because I've heard you speak about campaigns before where it's kind of like a, an open cart, closed cart, where you're kind of like, this offer runs from now and then you can't get it anymore. So that scarcity aspect is there. How do you think it could work with something that's always running? And obviously, as a network marketer, you're not in control of opening an offer or closing an yeah. offer. So what you're in control of in network marketing is essentially... The network marketing company has handled, has outsourced two two important parts of the business. So part number one is the marketing, right? So they're saying, we want to leverage your existing networks. We want to leverage your um, energy and your skills in opening up new markets to us. So <clears throat> that's through you. You're the gateway to a market. The second thing that they're outsourcing is leadership. So they're saying, you're going to lead a team. You're going to have a team of people that you, you lead. So... When you think about it from those point of views, you say, okay, uh, if I want to get to 100 people by the end of the year, I need to, uh, you know two or three people per week uh, to come on through. And those people are going to need training and support and, and all of those sorts of things. So the open cart, closed cart is the ability to join your team. So what you'd say, essentially say is each year I'm only going to take on um, you know, 40 people. Uh, and I can train and onboard, you know, people in groups per month. So you either join in this month and get trained next month. Um, and if you, you know, if the, um, you know, if you want to go ahead with that and, and the support and the training and the vibe that we offer, you need to jump on board our team, hit certain targets if you want to stay on our team. And, um, you know, and if you if you don't, that's fine. But, you know, we, we have a limited number of people that we, bring on board the team and, uh, and and train and develop. So that's one way to think about it. Um, the other one too is just doing a perfect repeatable week. So perfect repeatable week is you know that if you have 40 people in front of you, that 16 of them are going to buy something and four of them are going to join the business. So it's like, okay, well, that's my plan. I'm just going to every single week, I'm just going to you know book that number of people. I'm going to figure out what does a perfect repeatable week look like. Um, and uh, and go go with it from there. Yeah, it's such a good way of looking at it because I I I, w- I work out my day and I know I, like a lot of my team work out their day and what their kind of like daily method of operation is. But from a week, it's a really great way to keep, make sure you're keeping on track because in, in network marketing we work by months. So you're you know beginning of the next month your stats start again. So it's easy to go by the month. But sometimes three weeks can go and the work that you've been doing you're not on track and you only realize that at the end of the month when you're like, that's not where I'm meant to be. But a week makes sure, you know, enables you to stay on track, doesn't it? And keep tweaking. 
Yeah, it does. Yeah, nice, perfect. That whole idea too of the perfect repeatable week that you're going to do something that's the same, right? So it's kind of like if you go to the gym, if you were to say, I'm going to have a perfect repeatable week at the gym where I'm going to have a particular workout that I do on a Monday, a Wednesday, and a Friday. I'm going to have that all planned in my diary. I know exactly if it's a Monday, I'm doing this type of workout. If it's a Wednesday, I'm doing this type of workout, right? And then you say, and on the Tuesdays and the and the Thursdays, I'm going to do another particular thing. And I'm also even going to map out, these are my meals. Uh, and I'm going to prepare a perfect uh, you know, things that I'm going to eat throughout the, uh, throughout the week. And if you can kind of orchestrate and say, I'm just going to repeat that. I'm going to pick something that works and just do it over and over and over. So I'll go back to the origin of my story. What I learned when I did that fast growth st- startup with John is perfect repeatable weeks. So every single Saturday or Sunday, we would run an ad in the newspaper. The ad would be a promotion to come along to a Wednesday workshop. The Wednesday workshop would be for about 60, 70, 80 people. Uh, we would deliver a presentation and then we would um, follow up with those people the following week uh, to make sales. And we just ran this over and over and over. We did it everywhere. When I grew a very fast growth business, all I really did was I had that same plan running in Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne, and then I added direct mail to it where I'd send, send stuff out in the mail, letters to people in the, in the mail, and we'd send out 10,000 of those a week or a month or whatever it was. But essentially, we just, we just did perfect repeatable weeks, and it was, you know, rather than having a Wednesday presentation, we'd have Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday running, and <laughs> we just ran that, uh, and it was very much just repeat, 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 repeat. So, um, yeah, it was just breaking it down into those little numbers and eventually it adds up to $11 million for the year. Really good. (laughs) Really nice. That is so worth creating those habits. So I've just had a little strategy pop up in my head. Let me know what you think about this. So um, obviously you've got your, I know you told me before you're in the business of of, uh, giving light bulbs and I just had another one. So obviously you have um, your company score app. I was looking at it this week. I love it. So it basically helps people. You create a quiz, don't you? And then someone would take that quiz. You'd kind of qualify and let them know what their score is. And then based on that, that's going to lead them into your next step. So, you know, essentially getting them on a call or something with you is yeah. one of your training calls. Like, for example, you might have a should you start a podcast, uh, take the quiz. Mm-hmm. And you answer the questions, uh, you know, 20 questions and then people answer that and it gives them a score whether they should start a podcast or not. Mm-hmm. And people who score highly that they should but they don't have one are perfect customers for, for, for that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you read my mind. So I do the, the score app, should you take a quiz, the people that get a high score, they then are led onto my free training call. They got onto the training call and then at the end of the training call, there's a there's an amazing offer for my course. That's like the perfect run, isn't it? And if I set my goal at this is how many people I need to get on my on my training call, then you can work backwards, can't you? And think, right, you how many people do I need to there. take the quiz? How many people need to see that quiz in order to take it? So this kind of thing is my jam, by the way. This makes me so giddy. You know, like all processes that flow magically. They flow really nicely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah and, and that's, that's the only and way to scale, is, yeah. isn't it, really? Once you have a process that's in place yeah. like that and it's not you scrambling around each week thinking, what am I doing? What do I do? Yeah, we, we have a dashboard that we have in all of our businesses, which is called the LAPS dashboard. LAPS stands for Leads, Appointments, Presentations and Sales. So, um, and we... 
it's quite amazing how globally, because we run a global business, uh, globally the lapse numbers are almost exactly the same all over the world. So there's a certain amount of leads, like it might be 60 uh, leads come in, turns into 15 appointments set, 12 uh, presentations delivered and three sales made. And it might be just like 60, 15, 12, three. And it's like, and it's all over the world, wherever we're operating, it's pretty much those numbers. And it very much becomes a domino effect. If we can generate 60 leads, we can book 15 appointments, we can present to 12, we can deliver uh, three, we can get three sales. And it's very similar numbers. Oh my God, yeah. I'm going to nerd out on that so much later. <laughs> I'm going to get in the rabbit hole Ooh. and I'm going yeah. to have all these quizzes. And, and put a big poster on the wall, which is LAPS, LAPS, and just track. You know, one of the things that we do with all early stage businesses is just with a pen and paper, have a poster on the wall that's how many leads, appointments, presentations and sales did you do this week? I cannot tell you how many people have said to me, oh, my business isn't working. And I go, I just want you to track your laps for the for the next couple of weeks and tell me what your laps numbers are. And they've got great laps numbers. And it's like, actually, if we did that 40 more weeks of the year, your business would be working. You just haven't given enough time. Um, that's great, though, because when you have that data, it gives you the confidence to keep doing the do and being patient. When you don't have that data, you're so like, oh, do I, do I change it? Do I keep? And that's the hardest thing, isn't it? I mean, patience in business is... And also the feeling of rejection, because I hate to say it, but really good numbers, really good numbers are like 5%. You know, if you generate a lead and 5% of people buy, you can build a massive business on that. Apple probably does 5%. So if you went down to the Apple store and you measure how many people walk into the Apple store, how many people are browsing, looking at something, how many people are talking to an Apple employee, and then how many people are walking out with a bag of something that they just bought, you're probably talking about 5% of people. And that's Apple, right? So like Apple's probably doing, you know, 60, 12, 10, 2 or something along that line. (laughs) They're doing okay, but they get a lot of rejection. They probably get 48 out of 50 people who don't buy something. So when you're an entrepreneur, you feel so rejected by that. You feel like, oh, I must be doing something wrong. And it's like, no, you got the same numbers as Apple. That's oh, that, that's what that's why the percentages in network marketing of people that are successful with it are so low because people they start their business and then a month in they haven't got to where they want to get to and then they they stop their business and I, I always say to them you know imagine if you opened up a shop and people were coming in and they weren't buying stuff you wouldn't literally close the shop down a month later you'd think right what can I do and you know you'd really look at it and that's why I something I'm so passionate about is helping people just get through that bit where it's so uncomfortable and you feel like nothing's working but you're just working your ass off. Um, it's got to keep and that, and that sucks because that is, unfortunately, that is entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is full of something called J-curves. J-curves is it gets worse before it gets better or it goes bad before it goes well. Um, so the, the name J-curve comes from the shape of a J and the J goes down before it goes up. And if you think about opening a restaurant, you know, you spend a million pounds fitting out a restaurant and then you make your very first sale and it's 20 pounds. And it's like, wow, I spent a million pounds to make 20 pounds. And then another one comes through and now you've made 40 pounds. And and then, you know, a table gets booked and it's like, okay, we made 150 pounds off that table. So suddenly it starts to move, but that you unfortunately go through the J of just losing money, losing money, losing money before it comes out the other end. Um 
So the the dreaded J curve is something that they don't teach you in school. You don't get taught. Remember this: the schooling system was completely designed for an industrial workforce that doesn't really exist anymore. So you know, anyone listening to this went to a schooling system, and essentially, you know, let's peel back the layers as adults. What actually happened was uh, local factories and local employers got talking to head teachers and said, these are the type of people I need in my factory, in my workforce. And they kind of basically started crafting a curriculum of, of like, these are like when they turn 18, I want them to, when they turn 17, I want them to be able to read. I want them to do this. I want them to start on time, finish on time. I want them to eat on a bell. I want them to stop eating on a bell. Uh, and I want them to get to get to work on time and I want them to leave on time and I want them to be reliable little workers. And if they do that, they get, they get paid. Um, I don't want them to be disruptive, creative. I don't want them to be coming up with campaigns or bringing ideas to me or any of those sorts of things. I, I don't want the class clowns, be, beat the class clown out of them, right? Uh, I, I want them to be quiet, obedient workers. So that was the origins of the schooling system. And they never taught you anything like how to sell something, how to create something, how to, you know, develop a a marketing plan or any of those kind of things, how to calculate that, you know, things are going to get worse before they get better, but then they get really good. All of that was completely removed and replaced with just simply here's how to be a good, obedient little worker. So we've got to make sure that a lot of, we, we never got the training for entrepreneurship. Hey, just a quickie. If you would love more info like this and you want to engage with more people exactly like you, then make sure you head over to my Facebook group, the Ambitious Female Entrepreneur Club. It is an amazing space full of entrepreneurs and ambitious people that are going to challenge you to become more and be more and do more and create more for yourself. I'm so inspired by this group of women and every single month I get an expert coming in and teaching a free masterclass alongside lots of other free trainings and Facebook lives and loads of assets to help you build your business online. I really cannot wait to welcome you into the Ambitious Female Entrepreneur Club. See you soon. Bye. Which leads on perfectly to, there's something else I want to talk about, but that leads perfectly on to your book, which is teaching kids how to be entrepreneurs. This, when I saw that you have that, that literally lit up my soul. So I've got two kids. Uh, My little girl is six months. My boy is two. And um, I would love them to be entrepreneurs. You know, when you, when you spoke about the kind of people that aren't right for the schooling system, um, that's not my kids. I know my kids are so creative. There wasn't me either. So um, talk to us about that and how that's come about. Yeah, so the book was written because, yeah, as I said, I've got little kids, three-year-old, four-year-old and seven-year-old going to school. And, you know, the the idea is um, that we need to prepare them for a world that's coming. And I'm absolutely, just to be clear, I'm absolutely not saying that you should try and force children into a, you know, stressful situation that they're not ready for. Um, some people are like, oh, children should be left to have a good childhood. Of course, right? Um, the the idea is, is that we should start introducing ideas that are right for the times that we're in. So, you know, what do I mean by that? So, for example, in school, if you're if you're disruptive, that's the worst possible thing that you could be. Um, in business, they'll put you on the front cover of Inc. magazine if you're disruptive. Um, in school, if you get the smart kid to do your maths homework, that's cheating. 
that if you're an entrepreneur, that's called having a CFO. So um, <laughs> <That's> outsourcing. <laughs> So you basically, um, what you're trying to do is make sure that you're contextualizing for children and it gives you ways of doing that, but you're contextualizing that there's certain things that we're learning at school, but actually there's going to be this the whole thing called life, which is going to be very different. And let's start planning for some of those things that are going to happen in life. So let's start learning about sales skills. Let's start learning about how to market something. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. My little boy, he's building lots of trains uh, at the moment and he said, come up and and, um, look at the trains on the weekend. And I said, well, what you want is you want us to drop what we're doing and come and look at the trains. You need to have a brochure, something that you can show us so that we want to leave the kitchen and then come up. So you've got to draw something that tells us what's going to be in the room when we get there and that way we know that we that we should go there. So you should have a poster or a brochure. Why don't you make a poster that you can show us and then we'll come on up. And he says, okay, that's really good. So he goes away, he draws a poster and then he comes back and he says, um, I want to, you know, come up and have a look at my trains. And I say, okay. So what I want you to do now is I want you to give me a ticket and I'll pay you some money for the ticket to go to the show. And he goes, oh, wow, okay, cool. So he creates <laughs> these tickets and he's got a ticket for mummy and for daddy and for everyone. So he's got all these little tickets and he draws the trains on there. So then we all give him like 10p and, and buy our ticket. And then we see the poster. He shows us the poster and then we, we buy a ticket and then we go up and we see the trains. And it was so much fun, right? The whole game was, was fun and it wasn't like stressful or anything. It was just, but it was this idea that his creativity could be turned into some marketing materials, which could be turned into some money for the money jar. Um, and he, I mean, at seven, he's just loving all of those steps along the way, added so much, so much to it. So little things that kids do can so naturally be turned into little lessons for, um, for, for entrepreneurship. Oh, that is so good. I love that. And I think if, if I think about myself as a kid, actually, I, I would have loved that as well. I used to love having a little shop till and getting everything in, in the kitchen and selling it. <laughs> yeah. they Oh, kids are so natural. They, they absolutely so naturally do the things that we call entrepreneurship. They, they are great salespeople. They're great at pitching. You know, the thing with children is everything that they want to achieve has to be done through a decision maker that's not them. They don't have the ability to just make a decision for themselves. They have to enroll you um, into, uh, into their vision. So, you know, they become very, very good at figuring out campaigns that are either based on annoying you or inspiring <laughs> you or entertaining you, but they are going to figure out how to get you enrolled into their world, into their vision uh, for the future. So the key is, is to see it like that and to say, oh, okay, what you're trying to do is enroll me into what you want to do. Let me let me help you learn the lessons of how to enroll people into your vision. That's so good. A friend of mine, actually, she ended up having a third baby really late in life because her kids had obviously set up this whole subconscious campaign telling her why they needed a sister <laughs> and she ended up having a kid. So, yeah, we've got to be careful with these kids. They're wise. They're very, very <laughs> They're wise. <laughs> I know. But I think, though... Um, so much of entrepreneurship and why people struggle so much is like you say, it's actually unlearning stuff that we've had drilled into us. So I love the idea of teaching them things from a new age and 
just getting them off on that journey straight away. Mm, mm, yeah, and and just being aware as a parent that school the schooling system serves its purpose and it's done a great job for two hundred years, but ultimately it's not there to set your kids up for a great, successful, amazing life where they're happy and they're affluent. It's that it's it, the origins of school the schooling system are to create obedient little workers that work in the industrialized. Uh, factory system, whether it's white collar or blue collar, but that's the origins, right? So, you know, and that's what it's set up to do. So it's our job as parents to um, to start introducing a few of these other lessons. Yeah, definitely. I definitely learned that as a kid because my... Um I, I, I grew up to be a professional dancer. That was my career. My partner grew up to be a professional ice hockey player. Um, and loads of our kind of training was all about, not training, but, you know, our, our um, upbringing was just about mindset, really. It wasn't so much about really pushing the educational system. It was about your mindset and how do you become resilient? How do you keep coming back when you've got knocked back? And I think that set me up for life life so well can I tell you a story oh, yeah. about um a, a quick Please story do. about um so like I said I was a professional dancer and it's funny because when I was listening to um oversubscribed you spoke about the Monty Python show and how they used uh the the, the concept of being oversubscribed there so they sold one show didn't they they sold one show it yep. sold out in like 48 seconds and then randomly near the end of it they popped out another nine shows and they said because of because of this we've decided to add in another nine shows well funny thing is I was actually a dancer in that and uh oh, and, wow. yeah and I was contracted to the whole 10 shows before the first show went out so when I listened to that I thought he knows he knows and but it was a really clever marketing strategy wasn't it because by the time they opened up the nine shows everyone was like selling their souls to get tickets totally right so had they said uh there's 10 shows fifteen thousand people per show there's 150,000 tickets available people would have kind of had a feeling of like okay that's that's fine uh i'll get a i'm sure there'll be a ticket if i want one but when they said there's it's one night only there's only fifteen thousand tickets everyone was like right so it caused freak out but it also caused news they were so clever they got they got the headline news uh, that it sold out in 48 seconds. Um, and then that made people go, oh, they felt the disappointment of missing out. Oh, I wish I had have had a, a ticket. I wish I had have got up early to get one of those tickets. I'm so disappointed. And then, okay, okay, all right, all right, I'll, I'll do an extra nine shows. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so, so that's so funny, right? Of course, they, of course they planned it like that and you were booked for the ten shows. Was it yeah. good fun? Oh, my God, it was amazing. It was actually the last job I did before before I stopped dancing, and it was incredible just being on stage in front of that many people and, you know, obviously the guys themselves were absolutely amazing. It was an incredible experience. The Great set was vibe. huge. And, yeah, and just that buzz of, like, it was going out live to cinemas and theatres all yeah. around the world, and that one night knowing that everyone was seeing this was just, yeah, it was a crazy, crazy, it crazy time. Great. Now, the thing, too, is that, if Monty Python have to do those little funny games, those little tricks, right, then, you know, you can't be sitting there going, oh, I'm above all of that. It's like you're definitely not above all of that because Monty Python isn't above all of that. Um, the biggest bands in the world, you know, Glastonbury isn't above all of that. Um, the top coaches in the world isn't above all of that. So what you ha- you must create moments where people feel a sense that they could miss out on what they want. 
Um, you've got to figure out how to do it ethically, how to do it responsibly, how to do it, uh, you know, uh, in a way that um, that engages people and doesn't repel people. It's a bit of an art form, but that is part of the art form of business. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that um, people felt that moment of disappointment because often you don't ever want to disappoint your customers, do you? You don't want to disappoint your audience, but actually it's a powerful feeling. And when they do feel like they've missed out, that's when they take radical action the next time. They think, oh, you know, and it creates that urgency. I thought it was such an interesting thing. And the amount of times that I've put together an event and I've made more space than I have, you know, just to make sure that everyone gets an opportunity. And then towards the end of it, I'm scrambling trying to fill the seats. It ruins your energy as well. And you would have been so much better off having a smaller, uh, having a smaller venue, but having the tickets go real fast and people miss out and they go, well, I better go next one. And also I really took from it how you talk about kind of creating the hype before you even launch it. So, you know, I would always have said before that I, I'd launch it and that's the hype. But for you, you said about, you know, getting people interested and getting them on a wait list so that when you launch it, you say, and quite visibly, if, if the wait list was in a Facebook group, you said, you know, there are 500 people in this Facebook group and there is space for a hundred of you. That's so visible to say, I need to move and get a seat. Yeah. Yeah. So this is called marketing for signals, not sales and transparency. So those are two of the principles in the book Oversubscribed. So marketing for signals, not sales is um, like, for, for example, the Rolex watch, you cannot buy one. You absolutely can't just simply walk into a shop and say, I want to buy one. All you, the only first step you can make is to join the waiting list. So if you want a Rolex, you have to contact an, what's called an authorized dealer you then go in and they basically say, what Rolex, which one would you like? And then they laugh at you. So you say, oh, I would like a Submariner. And they go, you'll never get a Submariner. It's never going to happen. And you go, oh. And they say, look, let me put you on a waiting list and I'll tell you what is available. But it's going to take a year to two years before anything becomes available. You're never going to be able to get the watch that you want, right? So then you go, oh, okay, put me on the waiting list. So you join the signal thing and then they send you some updates as to how things are going at Rolex and how amazing everyone has their, you know, their watch. They're so happy with it, but you don't have one because you're a big loser. And then they, you know, you, you follow the Instagram account and blah, blah, blah. And then one day you get a call and they say, hey, good news. I've actually got exactly the watch that you want. Um, but you've only got three days. To, I can hold it for you for up to three days. If you can't get down here in the next three days, I have to give it to somebody else. And, oh, okay, I will go and get it, right? <laughs> so, um, and people will literally book a plane ticket. They'll, If it's at the airport, they will go and buy a plane ticket so they can go into the airport, buy their Rolex, fly somewhere, then fly home. Um, it absolutely happens all the time. So it's such a weird phenomenon that, that this happens. So what they're doing is marketing for signals, First, they're not trying to get you to buy anything. They're just asking you to signal your interest and then market and then they um, uh, give transparency so that you can transparently see that other people want this thing and then they create a moment to act. It just, it makes so much sense. And I think, again, it comes back to planning properly, doesn't it? If you've planned out a proper campaign and you're saying, this is the thing that I'm launching, you can say for the next, for the two months before that, whatever, I'm going to, 
I'm going to get my signals and I'm going to make sure that everyone knows about it. And I'm going to really get that awareness properly as opposed to just putting it out there and thinking, who wants one? Anyone want one? You? Yep. <laughs> you can have two. Yep. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's planning it properly, isn't it? I think that's what it, what it all comes down to. And you don't want to create a binary. The problem with asking people to buy things is it's binary. So let's say I'm 95% sure I want to buy your thing, but I'm 5% unsure. So if I need to be 100% sure in order to pay, then even being 95% is not enough. So therefore, if you force me into a decision of uh, either pay or don't pay, um, if I'm 95%, I go, yeah, I'll come back later because you gave me only two choices. If you say, uh, all I want you to do at this point is just signal that you're interested, even if I'm 10% sure that I want to buy, I'm going to signal. I'm just going to say, oh, well, okay, actually, I'm I'm 10% sure, so I'll put my name down, but I can always pull out later if I don't want to. So I'm just see, just that effortless first step of signaling that I'm interested. Now what then happens is I slowly warm up, so I'm only 10% interested. But then you send me some information and I see other people are doing it and I see great success stories, boom, 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 boom. And now I'm going, ah, okay, I'm very interested now. Uh, you've warmed me up to the idea. Uh, and now I've created a moment to act. So I'm I'm taking steps. It is, you, you just got to warm them up, haven't you? This actually leads me into perfectly the, the, the last main thing that I want to talk to you about, because I know I've taken so much of your time, but um, I love how you speak about the 7-11-4. So this is what really um, helped me realise about creating my personal brand and thinking I need to have lots of places where people can see me. It's not just that they're going to see one Instagram post. You know, people get fooled by thinking insta- um, influencers just post one post and then suddenly everyone buys their product. Actually, people need to have a bit of a binge on you first, don't they? So would you mind just sharing about the 7-11-4 and how we can all help warm our audience up with that? 7114 stands for seven hours, 11 interactions, and four locations, four or four places, four platforms. Um, and it's based on the research. And there's two, uh, two research uh, papers that I read that were very much made me come up with 7114. So the first one was Google's uh, research called Zero Moments of Truth. And the other one was called uh, Professor Robert Dunbar, um, which was all about love, connection, and bonding. And, um, and friendship groups. And essentially what they both came to is a similar kind of concept is that people require uh, warming up. They need to be warmed up to something. So the warming up is essentially there's a critical number of spending seven hours with someone. There's another critical number of being connected uh, and having 11 positive interactions. And there's another number which is being in four different spots with someone. So for example, if I was connected with you on Instagram and we listened to the podcast uh, and I saw something on YouTube and I followed you on Facebook, that would actually be four locations. If I spent seven hours listening to podcasts, right, that would be seven hours. And if I had just been following along your Instagram and there's like 11 funny posts that really engage me and I read them and I scrolled and all that sort of stuff, that would be 11 interactions. Now, essentially... The human brain has a very, very limited number of things it can pay attention to, and it has to block everything else out. So if I'm walking down Oxford Street and there's thousands of people on the street, 
if I get to the other end of the, sh- the street and someone stops me and says, describe for me three or four of the people that you walked past. I can't do that. I, I just like, I blocked them out, right? I didn't even, I didn't pay all, all that much attention. But if I'm walking down that busy street and I'm blocking everyone out and then suddenly I see my friend from high school, I go, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you in years, right? And my brain just filters straight away, bang. I spot them, I reckon, even if they were across the street, I might notice them. So I spot them, I recognize them, and it brings back all the flood of feelings and memories about that person. So that's how the human brain is wired. We, we, we filter 99% out and we then zone in on the people that we have time interactions and locations with. And, uh, and basically what we have to do, if we want to have a really loyal audience, we have to what's called 7-Eleven for them. So 7-Eleven foring them is deliberately getting people to clock up 7 hours, 11 interactions for locations. Um, so my wife, for example, very upset when David Bowie passed away and she was like, oh, you know, and I'm, and I, it's funny. She never met David Bowie. Um, she, she never spent any quality time with David Bowie, but she did in her brain. She listened to albums. She followed along. She read his articles. She, you know, she, she followed him as a personality. So her brain had been 7-Eleven forward by David Bowie. Uh, and that's why she felt a sense of loss when he, he, he passed away, um, so, yeah, so essentially that's, that's what we have to do as marketeers. We have to 7-Eleven for more people. I love that. So if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, oh, God, I've only just mastered Instagram. How the hell do I get these seven hours and do all of this? What would you say is the, is the first step for them without getting so overwhelmed and thinking, oh, money, oh, my God, I need to be everywhere all the time? What would your first step it would be um, my first step would be invite people to come and hang out on a Zoom with you. Do do a Zoom. Do a one-hour Zoom hangout um, or a Zoom presentation and see if you can get seven or eight people to come and jump on a Zoom call and talk them through an idea, see what they have to say. Um, but actually just, you know, if people commit to a one-hour Zoom call, they're, you know, they're going to, um, they're going to be very close to, you know, they're, they're going to be a big chunk of the way towards, you um, uh, towards doing that. The other thing I'll say is this, if you're feeling overwhelmed, really overwhelmed by entrepreneurship, I would highly encourage you to be part of somebody else's team. Whether if you're in a network marketing business, you need to get yourself under the wing of someone who's super successful and just see how they operate for real. Um, if you're not in a network marketing business, it might be worth joining somebody else's team. You know, we have this weird idea that you either work in corporate at some massive corporation like Microsoft, or you go off and start your own business and um, and launch your own thing. Now, there's actually 6 million businesses that are small businesses in the UK, for example, 6 million businesses that need someone to join the team as a number two, a number three, a number four. So um, one thing that I have seen again and again and again is that the best entrepreneurs almost always start off under the wing of someone who's really good. They do a year or two working under that person's wing and they see what goes on behind the scenes and then they build uh, their own business uh, as a result. Because what it appears to be, when you see someone like myself on Instagram or you might see myself you know, doing all these things. And it seems like I'm superhuman. It might seem like, how does he have time for all of that? He's got three kids and, you know, he writes four books and he's got seven companies and yeah, but I've got a hundred employees. I've got a hundred people on the team every single day, 700 hours worth of work happens. 
Um, because, you know, there's 100 people spending seven hours a day, there's 700 hours in a day of, of, you know, happening. So the reason it seems like we get a lot done is because there's 700 hours a day. Um, you know, so you can't compare yourself uh, to the, you know, to what you're seeing, uh, you know, on the flashy surface to what's actually happening behind the scenes. So I have had dozens of young people come and work in my company for a year or two and then go off and start their own business because they actually understand what happens at Monday morning team meeting, what happens on Friday afternoon debrief, what are our advertising budgets, how do we spend our advertising budgets, how do we build social media, how do we transfer people from social media over to a sales appointment. Um, All of those things are happening behind the scenes and you only really get to see that if you are part of the team. So, um, yeah, a big, a big thing is if anyone's feeling like, like if you're sitting there going, oh my goodness, it's overwhelming. How does it work? You have to get yourself onto somebody else's team before you go and start your own business. It shouldn't feel that overwhelming. Um, it's, it's funny if you ever see a magician performing a trick to the audience, it looks like magic to the magician. It's just a fake thumb. It's that's it. There's a fake thumb. And I poured the salt into the fake thumb and then I put the thumb onto my real thumb and then it looked like the salt disappeared and then I took the thumb off and then I tipped it out and it's like <laughs> it's it's just a fake thumb and everyone behind the scenes knows how the fake thumb works and they can even see the fake thumb. They can't believe the audience can't see the fake thumb. But for the person who's in the audience, it's like, oh, my goodness, they can magic salt into, uh, into existence. Um, so... So you've got to get behind the scenes so you can see how the magic trick is done. That is such good advice. Like you say, it is. it seems like either you have a job or you work on your own. And it's a crazy place, you know, when you're when you are just starting out, you question yourself so much. So that's really, really good advice, I think, to go and work for, especially a company that's like, you know, doing everything that you need to learn as an entrepreneur anyway, if they're doing email marketing and, you know, um, social media and, you know, digital marketing and all of that. It's the most amazing place to, to learn all of it, isn't it? That's yeah. and, really good and advice. And don't think, if, you're, if your goal is to learn entrepreneurship, don't go anywhere that has more than 10 people on a team. Like you, like upper, 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 upper limit has to be like seven or eight people, maybe 10. But you have to, you have to be on a, like the perfect scenario is that you're person number three or person number two. Um, but with someone who's who's more experienced than you are, um, maybe you know maybe try and be person number four or five. But realistically, like one of the things you can do, you can find someone who's a super successful entrepreneur, and you can say, "Can we co-start a business together?" Or, or have you got any business ideas that you want someone to work on? And I will like help you to launch something that you don't have time for, but we'll do it with your you know, you'll support your guidance and then I'll own a small percentage. Um, I know someone who did that. They went to a very, very wealthy family in Canada and this was a family that owned a huge insurance business, hundreds of millions. And they said, have you got, they said to the, like the patriarch of the family, have you got any business ideas that you just, you don't have time to start up, but you think it would be a good idea? I will have a 20% stake, but I will work my ass off to, to do it. And then you will have the eighty percent stake, and um, and I'll I'll make it happen. Um, and that business ended up getting so successful that they bought the twenty percent stake for eleven million off the guy. Um, and it was not it was not so surprising because when you're starting a business with someone who's already a superstar, 
they can pick up the phone and say, hey, can we plug this into that and can we get this promoted and can we leverage this resource that we have and can we can you leverage my name? So the, the person who's running around with the 20% stake, every conversation they're saying, oh, by the way, this is owned by Superstar. Um, yeah, yeah, but basically they bought, bought his, his 20% for 11 million. Wow, that's amazing. I feel like you might have just set yourself up with some business pitches in your email now. <laughs> I was going to write, yeah. excuse and, me, Daniel, and some high expectations. <laughs> yeah, people, people are like, where's my 11 million? I did the work. I know. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. I've got three quick fire questions to ask you, which I always ask my guests, if that's okay. Um, Let's go for wrap it. Up. So first of all, how do you measure personal success? So on my desk, I have a personal mission statement which uh, it's got everything I want to do for the month. And um, basically it's got a part, uh, a whole section here on how I measure uh, personal success. Um, and it talks about uh, meaningful relationships, purposeful work, memorable experiences, and my ability to sustain it all. What is a book or podcast that changed your life? The book that changed my life was the first one that I wrote. Um, so I, re- I love reading books, but I can't tell you how much it's incredible life-changing moment when you r- write a book and publish it. No one can take that away from you once you're an author. Um, and it's an, um, the, the level of incredible experiences that have come to me through people who've read a book and then gotten in touch. Um, so I'm going to f- flip that question a little bit and say uh, if you've got time to read, you might have time to write and I would encourage you to perhaps even start with a blog or an article. But it's the stuff that you put publish. It's the creation that changes your life, not the consumption. I'm actually writing a book at the moment. It's my goal for this Ooh. year. <laughs> Love it. And then lastly, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Uh, business. I'll stick to business advice. And it was a little piece of advice that just said income follows assets. And basically it said the more you build up great assets and the more you think long-term and you build quality, um, life gets easier and easier and easier. Um, and try and develop and build high-quality assets that will, that will stand the test of time and, um, and try and own those assets. And, and the more you can own those assets, the more life just gets uh, better and easier. And it's been true. The more the more I've tried to develop and build quality assets, um, uh, whether it's software or media or winning awards or owning databases or buying businesses, um, then it's true. Life has gotten better and easier uh, with, with each new asset. You have a book, 24 Assets, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that piece of advice that. led to that book, yeah. I love it. Amazing. Yeah. Daniel, thank you so much. I've absolutely loved chatting to you. I feel like I've had a little masterclass in business. It's been amazing. I know that all my listeners will love it as well. So where can they all 7-Eleven for you? <laughs> well, they can. there's all four books. Now, you had two light bulb moments. You've got two more books to read uh, mm-hmm. for more light bulbs. Uh, there's Entrepreneur Revolution for getting started. There's Key Person of Influence for building your brand oversubscribed for marketing um, and 24 assets for building a really stable, scalable business. Um, And then there's how to raise entrepreneurial kids if you're into um, parenting. Uh, So there's the, there's the five books that I've, I've got out there. Um, And if you want to check out score app uh, that's for building a quiz that will generate leads um, that you can make sales with, Uh, or you can um, attend any of our talks at dent.global. There's always a talk um, that we that we bring interesting entrepreneurs to the stage and 
um, uh, yeah, good, good fun there. Love it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. And I know that everyone's going to have taken so much from that. And I just can't wait to see everything else you're doing. I'm also going to go and binge score app right now. Just wait for my quizzes. It's going to be all over. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Is there it's a quiz for like what I should cook for dinner? Can I do stuff like that? Can, can I get real You should create one. <laughs> yeah, you should create one. Should, should, I, should I go all in tonight for dinner or just get myself uh, Deliveroo? The, the Deliveroo is always Deliveroo. It's a quick quiz. It's a quick quiz. <laughs> Thank you so much, Daniel. I've loved chatting to you and I look forward to chatting to you again soon. Likewise. Hey, just a quick one. If you loved this, it would mean so much to me if you would head over to Apple iTunes, click subscribe so that you always know when my new episodes are out and also leave me a five-star review. It really does make such a difference. And of course, share this on your Instagram as well or all of your social media platforms and let other people know who might find this helpful. Tag me at Carly Myers Life and reach out to me. I can't wait to chat to you in the DMs and I look forward to chatting to you next week. Bye.